Well, welcome to the first night of the men's retreat. I think it's a great idea that what we do is we work all day, we drive two and a half hours into the wilderness, we eat ridiculous amounts of meat, we worship the Lord well, and then we sit for some teaching while some of you are already going to sleep. This is a great, I suggested, Stephen, can't we move the, the meat afterwards? Can't we? And no, that, he thought there could be a riot, but I'm so glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this for about four months. Um, some of you know me, most of you don't. I'm, I'm Walt McCord, and um, for the last four years, my wife and I have been coming to Wayside. My wife, Brenda, is the woman's ministry director. Uh, about two years ago, I was asked on the elder board, I don't know what Jim Custer was thinking or Mark at that time, you know, Tim, if you, it, I don't know what you were thinking, but they invited me on and had the joy of serving there. And then a month ago, I was called to be the newest member of the, the pastoral staff at Wayside Chapel. And, um, and, and I say newest because maybe some of you would catch, I'm not the youngest. Did you, you know, there are some younger pastors on staff, but I'm the newest and I'm look, I'm just loving it. It's a, it's a good ministry. There's one thing that men spiritually need, I believe more than anything else. And it's to connect to God and connect to others in prayer. That's one of the marks of the health of a church, how their men pray. And as they pray, how they lead as servant leaders, teaching others to pray. And that's the topic for this weekend. We're going to spend most of this weekend in Matthew chapter 6. I know that um, Stephen has some great resources on the back table. I just commend this prayer, how praying together shapes the church. And then a layman's look to the Lord's prayer, both excellent resources but I'd like just for this evening for us to just focus in a little bit on, on what prayer is and what happens in your heart and in my heart when the topic of prayer comes up. What happens in our heart when the topic of prayer comes up? We're going to have a retreat when it's on prayer. Now, you might say, like, one of the things is, I don't really think that much about prayer. Do you? And I would, add, I would say that's me from my beginning. Um, I was raised in a non-praying family right? Anyone else besides me raised in a non-praying family? Never heard my dad pray, utter a prayer. Never heard my mom utter a prayer. Well, that, that kept, I should stop. We were taught a children's prayer of grace. And that's, we would use that when visitors came over to the house and we wanted to impress them. And it was God is good. God is great. God is great. God is good. Lord, we thank you for this food. By your hand, we must be fed Give us, God, our daily bread. Amen. And, and we, were, we learned to recite that just to impress others. But that's the only prayer I ever heard uttered really in, in prayer until I became a teenager on my path to, to salvation. So some of you might be like me and saying, you know, what, what is prayer? For some of you, it might be like a flare gun. A flare gun that you shoot up in the sky. You've seen the guys that are in a, in a raft and, and they might see a ship or a, a plane's going over and they shoot that pl- prayer gun up into the sky, right? And what they're hoping for is rescue. They're hoping for rescue. And what they do, but they just save that one prayer bullet they've got left for that really dire circumstance. Now, some of the rest of us, maybe we've seen prayer more like um, AA fire, anti-aircraft fire that goes up and just puts up a wall of flak. And so we just shoot up prayers hoping we might hit something. We're trying for impact, 
but it's not focused. And then there's a group of people that for them, prayer is all about impressing others. It's all about impressing others. And Jesus has something to say to that group in Matthew 23, verse 28. So you outwardly, you appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy, These kind of folks are using prayer, hoping for respect, but it's external. It's not internal. And Jesus says in that chapter earlier, do what they tell you to do, but don't do what they say for you to do, but don't do what they do. That whole idea that they might have a great outward prayer life that is impressing others with their words, but it doesn't mean that they're having an inward prayer life that matters and draws them closer to God and closer to others. So for the next few minutes, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6. If you haven't already turned there, I'm going to set the context. Um, Matthew doesn't explicitly say this, but Luke in chapter 11 gives the context as this. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished praying, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now, that's the background for this context. And then Jesus begins to teach about prayer. And I I think this is interesting, but it also is encouraging to me. Because Jesus is going to tell us that we need to learn how to pray. And we'll talk about how we learn how to pray. Um, I didn't learn how to pray till I was 19 years old. And I got involved in a small men's Bible study and I just heard authentic prayers going out to God for things far more important than grace, success. Praying for your roommate that didn't know Christ. Praying for your friend that, that had just had an overdose. Praying for people that were searching desperately for meaning and doing it in all the wrong ways. And so anyway, Jesus begins with this. And Matthew, I'm going to give the the first verses into this, starting with verse five. When you pray, and by the way, this assumes that he, the faithful people of God would be praying. I should have, let me start that again. When y'all pray, when y'all pray. Um, Some of you know, a couple of you know, um, I spent some time in South Philly, um, actually North Philly, Bucks County, but um, one of the things I got there was the Italian Stallion, right? Rocky, use guys. So use guys. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, the two-faced people who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father, who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. And when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetitions do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like that. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Y'all pray then in this way. I'm saying that y'all repeatedly because the pronouns that describe the people that are supposed to be learning how to pray are all plural. Y'all, faithful followers of Christ, we need to learn to pray. And here are some components of this. Let me just read this and then we'll unpack it. Pray in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, what? Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in 
And we'll stop there. What is prayer? Is prayer something we need instructed on? We don't just naturally come up in at two and three and four, learn how to pray unless we're around people that pray. Unless we're around people that pray significantly, repeatedly in our life. One of the delights I have, I, wasn't, I was raised in a church-going family, but not a biblical family, not a Christian family. And we went to church because good people went to church. Anyone relate to that? I'm good. It's Sunday morning, good people are in a church. And we went to church that never taught the word of God. I never saw anyone pray other than opening up the back of the hymnal and there were different psalms and prayers that we would recite together. But I never saw someone stand up and pray. And with that, my spiritual growth didn't occur till I trusted Christ at 18 and, and start, started to get in a small group where guys taught me how to pray. It's something that I needed to learn. What it's not, it's not showy in a public demonstration meant to impress others. Whatever comes out of this weekend, it's not to be showy and, and, and with a goal of impressing others. That's what it's not to be. It's, it's a personal communication with our Heavenly Father who sees in secret. It's talking to Abba Father. It's talking to our Heavenly Father who sees what we really need. And it's focused on God and his glorious plan. And it's full of praise. Our prayers, one of the marks of a believer is that we should have an attitude of gratitude. We should be marked by our thankfulness. Do you know what's to mark an unbeliever? Grumbling, complaining, murmuring. Those are the marks. If, if that describes you during your work day, don't tell people you're a Christian. That's a strong statement to make. But, it, but if you're still living in the flesh, murmuring, grumbling, complaining, griping, don't tell people you're a believer because you're not living out what God's word says. Instead, say, God, help begin to cause me these attributes that you'd say are so important. So the first point, what is prayer? It is that communication with a heavenly father who knows us and loves us and he's very good. He's very good. Secondly, why do we need community? Why prayer? Now, there's times when you pray in secret. There's times when you pray alone. There's no doubt about that. Coming out here in my car, I didn't have community. I had to just pray with me. And I had a great time at fellowship and prayer. Um, you know, especially about, uh, what, 15 miles away where your cell phone ceases to work. <laughs> you know, let's just pray. Let's just pray. And so that, there are times when we do that quietly and secretly. But there also is corporate prayer. There's prayer for one another that draws us closer to each other and closer to God. That's what God intended for prayer to be. But part of that is understanding who our Heavenly Father is. And for some of us, we need to unlearn things about Father. Anyone relate that to me? My dad was born in 1920 in a coal mining family. He was the first McCord that we know of to get out of the, the Appalachia coal mines in a place called Wiconisco, just about 45 minutes south of Scranton, if you ever watched The Office. So anyway, um, he grew up in the coal mines, and he got out because he finished high school, ROTC scholarship to go to uh, Penn State and to study forestry. But again, now at this point, right, it's 1940. 41, and he graduates in 42. My dad was framed by three great events. One is the coal mines. 
The second is the Great Depression. The re- he grew up in the, in the end of the Great Depression. And then third is World War II. He left a ranger school. He went from there over to North Africa and joined a group called Patton's Third Army. And from there, he went to Sicily. And from there, he went into Italy. And from there, he went over to England and into Europe. And he was there for five years. For five years. And um, my dad... Um, my dad taught me a lot, and, and, and he was good, but he wasn't kind. He was a tough, tough man, because that's what you had to do to make it through what he made it through. And so I understand that now, but he could be really physically tough with us and rough with us. And so when we come to the idea of our father, some of us need to unlearn what we think we know about father and relearn it from the biblical perspective. As you think about this, one of his core attributes is now said, our our loving, caring, good father that knows what we need before we ask him, right? His name is what? Hallowed, which is an old English way of saying holy. Now, where do we get the idea that Jesus is getting this idea, God is holy? Any of you have ideas? How about Isaiah chapter 6? where Isaiah is taken into the throne room of God and he's about to be commissioned to 50 years of service for the Lord, hard years where the northern 10 tribes are going to be destroyed by the Assyrians and the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, almost are destroyed by Assyria. And Isaiah is to be a faithful prophet during this whole time and never see this great revival. But he's to be faithful. And he's given a vision of God And the vision, as he's going in and he goes into the throne room of God, what does he hear? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All of creation is full of his glory. The Hebrew word is kadosh. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. By the way, that's significant because in Hebrew, they have no way of writing an exclamation point. If you want to explain explain something, if you want to give emphasis... You say it twice. God is holy. Come on, God is But if you add the third one, it's yelling it out. God is holy. What does that mean? If you go to a good Hebrew dictionary or lexicon, what it will explain to you is it's unique, distinct, different. And the antonyms of that are common, ordinary, the same, profane. Our Heavenly Father is unique in his ability to be full of love and grace, but also to be full of justice and righteousness, balanced perfectly. Boy, I I would love to say that's what I am as a dad. I think I see it in my kids better than me now as they raise their family. But that whole idea of God and his holiness, I'm going to read you one little snippet of Isaiah 57. By the way, Isaiah is the second most quoted book by Jesus in the, whole, in the whole Old Testament. Does anyone know what number one is? What? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, which seems really bizarre, doesn't it? But anyway, Isaiah is quoted over and over. This is what Isaiah says in chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is Holy. I dwell on high and a holy place. 
And also I dwell with the and lowly of spirit in order to receive the spirit of the lowly and to receive the heart of the contrite. Do you see, there's that heavenly father that's high and lifted up and exalted and holy and unique, but he dwells with those of us who come contrite and lowly in spirit and humbly before him and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when I first did that was July 13th, 1978 in a dorm room 402 of McKean Hall in Penn State University. Um, my great-grandparents, went, my grandparents went to Penn State. My parents went to Penn State on my mom's side. My mom and dad met at Penn State and we had five kids. Guess where the five kids went to school? Don't say, who said that? Spit on Pitt. What is that? No. Don't say Pitt and don't say the University of Pennsylvania, Penn. It's not Pitt or Penn. It's Penn State. It's Penn State. And it was there where I went to party my life away with a reputation in my high school senior yearbook as the the student most likely to die next partying. Look what pastoral staff is looking like now, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that whole idea of just, of just coming to God, even in prayer, it was so foreign to me. But in the, the loving kindness of God, he brought people around me that lived Christ in front of me. And they're the ones that taught me how to pray. Um, by the way, where is the focus to be? Where is the focus to be on, in our prayer? Is it on us? The focus is to be on on God and not only just on God, it's to be on God who is in heaven and whose name is holy. And what we should be reminded of often when we pray is, Lord, we want your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do do y'all know one of the things we should be regularly praying for that all too frequently I and maybe you too don't pray for? is the coming of God's kingdom and his glory filling the earth like the water fills the sea. And it will rush over all of the earth in a way, bringing judgment to the unrighteous who will bow in defeat and in punishment and then reward to those who have trusted in Christ and they will bend their knee in love and adoration and affection. That's the coming kingdom. And it's a huge plan. I I was looking through, and I just wanted to to summarize a couple of these kingdom verses. Zechariah chapter 12, when God says the person who will someday stand in victory on the Mount of Olives, and the scripture says this, I will pour out my spirit on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's a spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for their only son and they weep bitterly over like the bitter weeping over the death of a firstborn. This is what the prophet Zechariah is writing. This is hundreds of years before the cross. And he's saying someday there's someone that's going to come and set all things right. And when he does, don't be surprised about it because I'm going to tell you about him. But with it will be a, will be a surprise. He will bear with himself, what? 
What does it say? He will bear with himself. They will look on me whom they have pierced. He will bear on his body piercings that, that ashamed the Jewish nation. Why? Because even though Jesus the first time came, what? As the Lamb of God sent to be slain for the sins of the world. He came a babe in a manger. But you know, Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, he is not coming back as a baby. He's not coming back needing the help of parents and to learn how to walk. When he returns, the book of Revelation makes very clear, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, will come to this earth and will set up his kingdom and he will set all things right. You know, in a few weeks, in two weeks, as a matter of fact, I will be at a place called the Mount of Olives. And there on the Mount of Olives, if you look down, there's grave after grave after grave after grave of Jewish graves, and there's some of the most expensive cemetery plots in the world. Hundreds of thousands of dollars for a cemetery plot. Why? Are they there because Jesus left from there to go to the Mount of Olives, go up to heaven? Are they there? What are they there for? And the reason they're there is they believe the scriptures. In Zechariah, not only in chapter 12, it says this, where God is in person someday. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. It's actually Zechariah 14. I've got to go. For some reason, I I love when I do this. Have have any of you ever lost your place when you're speaking? Zechariah 14 says that, that that he will stand on the Mount of Olives and the mountain will split from the north to the south, and he will descend into the valley. And really, it's, a, it's following the prefigural told in chapter 11, where the Holy of Holies was removed the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, and it went up to the edge of the temple, and then from there, it went over to the Golden Gate. And from there, it went up to the Mount of Olives, and then it ascended into heaven. And then at the end of Zechariah, he says, oh, by the way, the Spirit of God will come that same way down the Mount of Olives, through the Golden Gate, into the temple area, and he will set all things right. Peter says of the coming kingdom in Acts chapter 3, repent therefore that your sins may be washed away and that times of refreshing will come from the hand of the Lord. Then there will be the restorations of all things. Do you know this earth, this earth is not as it should be? Could, could we use examples of that? For 15 years, I served the Lord in Chicago. Now, said, Or should I tell you about Chicago? It's the best-run corrupt city in America. And we are proud of how well that corrupt city is run, while all of us know that it's corrupt and going to bankruptcy. And it's just terrible things in the educational system. The largest youth detention center in the world is in downtown Chicago. Right next to it is one of the largest in America. And the rate of imprisonment, especially of young black men, is is out of this world. And that's not because they're worse than white men, but just their opportunities in downtown Chicago. I remember a few years ago, I was with a professor of a Dallas seminary. His name is Tony Evans. And Tony was describing justice and was talking through some different things. And he said, y'all, you guys, you need to realize this. A third of our young men, a third of our young men are dead. And another third of our young men are 
in prison. He said, we have eight to ten wonderful Christian women in our church for every one man. And he said, and the problems and the issues that that even brings up. And he said, y'all need to pray for places like that. South Oak Cliff and the south side of Chicago, which as you know, scripture says, is the baddest part of town. And if you go down there, just beware of who? A manly road bound. Uh, by the way, that's not scripturized. Just kidding. Jim, Jim Croach, it's close. Yeah, second half hesitations, yeah. As you think about this, there's a coming plan, and the plan will be glorious. God will be with us. Iman Uel, God with man. And I already said and alluded to it out of Peter's speech. You know what he'll do? He's going to restore something that we last saw where? In the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, when mankind had fellowship with God and they had fellowship with one another in such a way that they could be naked but not ashamed. There was no shame. There was no sin. There was no warped earth. There was unity and union between man and woman and them and God. Well, I said I was going to try to bring this in in 25 minutes. Can you give me two more minutes? Okay, two more minutes. So what does this mean to us as we kick off a weekend devoted to prayer? I would like to challenge you as I was challenged 15 years ago by a man by the name of Rick Warren. Have any of you ever heard that name? Okay, I'm dropping that name, but now I'm going to admit it's not the Rick Warren. Actually, if you want to ever see his testimony, just type in theotherrickwarren.com. And though he has a relationship with the Rick Warren, the pastor at Saddleback, this is a, a businessman, a Christian businessman up in Detroit. And he comes from a really messy background. For life, he served his flesh. Very successful in business, a functional alcoholic, uh, causing three abortions, encouraging and paying for three abortions, um, multiple affairs in his marriage so that after 14 years, his wife divorced him as she should have, right? And in the midst of that, God shook Rick's world and he came to faith in Christ. The day the divorce was final. Three years later, um, he was just praying in his own room and he'd grown, he'd been matured, he'd been discipled. He's growing in the Lord and he believed the Lord told him specifically, Rick, you need to go and apologize to your wife and ask her forgiveness. And he said, I'd apologized a bunch of times, well, but I'd never ask her forgiveness because how can she forgive me? Heck, I don't forgive me. What a cat I was. What, what a, a wicked man I was. And God began that, that spirit of healing where he realized that even that wi- the wickedness and the harm he had caused to others, including his two daughters, even that God could forgive him. Clint, as he's forgiven you of me of scores of things. I would shudder if up right now up on the screen in front of us came my life story in, in all of its fleshliness. But that doesn't define me. It me, my past impacts me, but it doesn't define me. What defines me now is my new standing in Christ and the closeness of my relationship to the Heavenly Father. He's adopted me. He's bestowed with me a name 
that I could never earn. Child of God, son of God. Heck, look around, you guys. Do you know what we have here? If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, we have princes of the kingdom. Did you ever think of yourself that way? We are adopted into the family. We're part of the royal lineage. Christ has called us brothers and brought us in. And yes, there's other images. We're still to be the servant of the Lord. We're also to be the bride of Christ, the church, just as Israel was the bride of Yahweh in the Old Testament. We're we're to understand some of those, but part of this imagery, even as we think about his kingdom coming, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And by the way, just a side note, how is the will of God being done right now in heaven? Do you think the will of God's being done pretty well in heaven? It's being done perfectly. It's being done immediately. It's being done powerfully. And usually that is all mitigated out through who? The angels of God. There's a whole section of this talk I'd love to do, part of the holiness and the angelic, but the whole idea that in the book of Hebrews, angels are ministering spirits sent for the encouragement of those who've trusted Christ. They're to encourage us. And even though we don't have to see them, we don't focus on them, they have a role. The will of God is done in heaven. Let me tell you, 15 years ago, as I met this guy, Rick Warren, he challenged me and he said this, for those of us who are married, he said, Walt, do you pray with your wife every day? I thought, and I'm like, do I have to be truthful? here. Um, Well, we pray a lot. We pray a lot. I think we pray more than most, right? And um, so, um, yeah, we pray. And Rick, being a a good um, businessman who cuts to the chase, says, well, I didn't ask you if you pray. I asked if you pray with your wife when? Every day. And he said, let me tell you why that's so important. When God told me to apologize to my wife shortly thereafter, I believe he told me to remarry her. And he said, what I realized is that the problems we had before are still going to be there. What will make a difference? And this guy has some financial resources, and he started um, hiring out and doing some research. And you know what he found out? He married. 80% of those marriages fail within five years because they're still the same problems. But you know what he also found out? that couples who pray together every day have less than a one-tenth of one percent divorce rate. Want me to say that again? Couples that pray together every day have less than one-tenth of one percent of a divorce rate. Why? Because when you pray together, you see each other's hearts and fears and you get to know one another. When you pray together, you go closer to each other, but also closer to God. And in that joint project of growing closer together and closer to God, we bring glory to God. It's good for us, and it's what God intended for us to be together in fellowship in the garden, and he sets all things right. So one application is, if you're married, pray with your your wife. How often? Every day. And some of you, if you're raised in non-praying families, maybe you can start by doing what's called silent prayer. And you just hold her hand and you say, let's pray together. But eventually the sound barrier will be broken and you might pray out loud. And that's good. By the way, I use that from 
uh, Chuck, not Chuck Sindahl, um, Gary Chapman. Gary Chapman. I traveled with Gary um, for four years. Just was thrilled that he was here at Wayside and he had a great time. Well, ending it with this. Not only do you pray with your wife, if you have kids, pray with your kids every day. Do any of you do that? Before they go to bed, I, I would go in and I would pray with them. I'd rub their back. Look, my kids are now 31, 35, and 36. And when we're together and if we're on a retreat or we're, and we're sitting in the living room, guess what they like to do? They like to have dad rub their back and pray for them. I regularly call each of my sons and I say at the end of the conversation, what's the biggest thing going on in your life that I can pray for? What's the biggest thing going on in your life that I can pray for? And then because we're a praying family, I will then say, hey, before we get off the phone, let me pray for that. And then the next time I text them, because my boys like texts, they don't like talking. Do any of you have boys that don't like talking? They like texts? Well, next time I text them, I say, hey, I've been praying for this. How's it going, Jonathan? And Jonathan knows what when I do that? That I heard him and that I care. Because there's very little I can do now for Jonathan other to encourage him through prayer and tell him I believe in him. Jonathan, I've seen the decisions you've been making. You're making great decisions. Keep going. Some of us in here might have another son, a prodigal. My oldest is named Mark. And right now he would say he's no longer a believer after once being the youth group leader of his church because of disappointment through people that, that claim to be men of God. But God's not done with Mark yet because he's got two praying grandparents, two praying parents, and he's got two brothers that pray for him daily. And now he's in real trouble. Guess guess who the brothers have praying for him? Their kids. And kids actually believe that prayer counts. And we should too. Men, don't. Be an island unto yourself. Come together and pray to our Father who loves us and is a good, good Father. And as you do that, you will go closer to Him and you'll go closer to each other. Can I pray as Ryan comes right now? Bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, as we start this topic, um, on a Friday night, I never know what... Uh, it's going on in the lives of men out front, but I do know that you do. And I know you, you want this weekend to be impactful. Father God, I pray that in your kindness, in your grace, and in your mercy, that you would bestow upon every man here a desire to glow, grow closer to you, a desire to center more of their attention and their affection on our good, good, holy, heavenly Father. God, thrill us with the the thought that this world isn't all there is, that there's coming a day when your kingdom will come and then your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll be with you when that happens. And we'll rejoice and we'll be victorious. But until that day, make us steadfast men of prayer. And that will bring honor and glory to our heavenly Father. And all God's men said, amen.